Hello and welcome back to the Fine Fergus Podcast. This week we have Missions Week with our DTS school. Today, Daniel Hoopteling shares his missionary journey. Then he walks us through scripture to show us the importance and the urgency of missions. Let's jump right in. Good morning. Um, I'll tell you real quickly two crazy provision stories just again to um, strengthen your faith related to um, fundraising and all the stuff that you need. Marlies and I, we were in Kenya and we, um, we had this car and it broke down, it died. And um, it was the only car we had, it's the only car our ministry used and um, we had nothing left of it. Actually, there was some, somebody wanted to buy the remains of it for parts and um, that guy then just disappeared with the parts, never paid us and we ended up with nothing. And um, so Marlies and I, we decided, okay, we need a support race because we need a vehicle and our ministry needs a car. And so we started to pray and fundraise. And I reached out to a bunch of people, like our supporters and churches and ministries that we were connected to and just kind of laid out what we, what we needed and were praying for and asked them to help us and consider giving towards a new vehicle. And um, a, a week goes by, one week, two weeks, three a month goes by, two months, and nobody gets back to me, literally nobody. And I raise zero dollars. Nothing comes in. And I'm a little disappointed. We asked so many people. Nobody responded whatsoever. And so three months go by, four, five, six months go by, and still I've raised zero dollars. That's a bad fundraising campaign. And, And I was frustrated. And I just didn't get it. And I was like, Lord, why? Like, what's going on? And I was trying hard in my heart not to get offended. I mean, with, with God, I just didn't understand why God didn't respond, why he was not providing. But then also with people. I was like, gosh, does nobody care about us? Don't they realize missionaries need a car? And don't, does nobody care? And I just didn't get it. For six months, we raised zero and zero dollars. And so one morning, this is six months in, I'm, and we're, we're doing six months without a car, and it's just hard and frustrating. And um, at, so at six-month point, one morning, I'm in our prayer room in Kenya, and I'm just praying. And again, I'm asking the Lord for a car. And at this point, I had no faith left. I had tried for six months. We had prayed consistently for six months and nothing changed. We got nothing, literally zero dollars. And um, so that morning I'm there, and so my, my prayer life related to the car was basically reduced to just begging God and trying to convince him, like, God, please look this way. Like, missionary, don't you love missionaries? Like, help me. I'm trying to convince God to do something. And, um, and it feels so dry and with no faith. And then all of a sudden, I was just sitting there on my knees quiet for a little bit. And all of a sudden, I hear God speak to me so clearly. And he says, real simply, Daniel, I want to give you a car. And when he said it, it's like faith just exploded in my heart. And in that moment, I felt like all the cars in the world were lined up in front of me. I felt like I could pick any car and I'd have it. And, um, and looking back, I should have maybe picked a different car. But <laughs> I felt like all the cars were there. And, um, and so then that day, the president of Kenya was visiting our town. And the car that he drives obviously was an amazing car. And it was like the top end all a four-wheel drive car that you could get in Kenya. Super expensive, but it's what the president drove. And also in Kenya, if you became a member of parliament, you would be given one of those cars. And it was my favorite car. And uh, so I'm sitting there, Faith Mart, and again, I feel like all the cars in the world are lined up. I feel like I could pick any car. So I said, Lord, I want that car, the president's car. 
and totally unaffordable, right? And, um, but then in the days that followed, all of a sudden, a bunch of people reached out to me, people that I'd emailed six months ago, said, hey, are you still fundraising for a car? We actually, if so, we want to give towards it. I'm like, yes. <laughs> Why didn't you get back to me? I was nice. But, and then um, a church, a pastor, he sends me an email and said, Daniel, you'll never believe this. On Sunday, we just kind of decided to take up an offering for your car. Six months later, anyways, take up an offering for your car. And he said, I don't know what happened. It's like a spirit of generosity came over our church, and we took up the biggest offering in the history of our church. Anyways, within no time, also, and this doesn't happen every week to me, right? <laughs> within no time, $50,000 came in. $50,000 came in. And I mean, that wasn't me. I tried for six months. I raised zero dollars, right? But in a moment, all of a sudden, $50,000 came in. And Marlise and I, we look at each other and we're like, I think this is it. I think we're rich now. This is it. We're rich missionaries. And it was amazing. And then we bought this car and it was cash for $50,000. The president's car, not his car, but the same car. It was still a used car because I knew they're even more crazy. So we got this car, this dream car, even had a little fridge in it. That is amazing, right? <laughs> it was so awesome. And, um, but through it, God really taught me a lesson that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. God is willing to provide for you. He wants to provide for you. For your DTS, for your outreach, for your needs, he really does. And then uh, I'll add one more story. Uh, when... Um, so after Kenya, we moved to Kansas City, and from Kansas City, we moved here, right? And so when we decided to move here, friends told us, well, when you come here, you should ship your car from Kansas City because there's fewer cars here, and it's more expensive, and it's just well worth doing that. But then the car we had in Kansas City was a really old car worth very little. I mean, maybe $500, $500. It was not a great car. And uh, not really worth shipping here for $2,000. And um, so my wife and I were talking about it, and then my wife said, Daniel, I'm going to pray for a new car and ask the Lord to provide for us. And we had just been on this trip to um, uh, St. Croix, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and somebody had let us use their car, and it was a Toyota Highlander, a great car. We remember driving it, and we thought, this is a great family car. And so Marlies said, I'm going to ask the Lord to provide for us a Toyota Highlander. And I said, great. She said, I'm going to make it my, faith, my prayer project. And uh, so we decided not to fundraise for a car or ask anybody. She was just going to pray for it. Because there was other stuff we were going to support raise for just for moving to Hawaii. And uh, so she starts praying. And every night when we went to bed, which is pretty much every night, when we went to bed, we, uh, our bedroom in Kansas City was, all, it was above the garage. And from our window, you could look over our driveway where our car would stand. And uh, the window had, we didn't have curtains. We had like these wooden shutters by the window. And uh, so every night, Marlise, who slept on the side of the window, she would close the shutters and she would look out the window and, and ask and pray for a car, for a Toyota Highlander. And I would always ask her, kind of started half jokingly, but then became kind of half serious. I'd always say, and the car there yet? And she would always say, not yet, but one night it'll stand right here. And um, so we, she did that every night for a week, month, Months went by of her praying every night, and I would ask every night, is the car there yet? She said, nope, but one night it'll stand here. And um, then shortly before we were to move here, I was speaking at our church in Kansas City, and um, 
after I had spoken, it was kind of like, like a goodbye message, so to speak. And then that Sunday afternoon, I got an email notification and somebody had given us a gift. And uh, in Kansas City, through the website of IUP, the International House of Prayer, where we want staff, you can give a donation to staff. Because it's the same as with YWAM, people raise their own support. And so somebody had looked me up on the website and had given me a gift. And then what happens is that you get an email notification with the, 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 the amount that was given and the name of who gave it and their address. And so I get an email that Sunday afternoon of somebody who gave us $1,000. And I didn't know the name of this guy, and he came from a state that, of which I didn't even know where that state was. And um, so I was like, oh, that's cool, and, but we didn't know him. And so we just kind of wrote him a thank you note because we had his address. We're like, thanks, this is awesome. And um, then uh, uh, one or two weeks go by, and the same person, again, he gives a gift of $500. I said, now I'm thinking, gosh, i got to figure out who this person is. This is amazing. And uh, so I do some extensive research on Facebook, and I find him. And I send him a message. I'm like, hey, thank you so much for the gifts you've forgiven. I would love to get to know you a little more and know who you are. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, no, that'd be great. So anyways, we landed on a time to call. He gives me his number, and um, on this one Thursday night, I'm going to call him. And so I call him up. And um, I introduced myself, he does him, and he was a doctor, somewhere a skin doctor. And um, immediately starts talking, he said, Daniel, you won't believe the pictures people sent me and the skin part, the body parts people show me even in church just because I'm a skin doctor. And, I'm, and immediately the conversation went a little strange. And uh, I'm like, okay. And th anyway, so he's talking about his work as a skin doctor. And um, then he said, so what's, and, I, and then I said, so how, why did you give us money? Like, how do you know us? And he said, oh, I was visiting IOP, and I was there that Sunday that you spoke. And he said, and I felt to give you something. And then again, a little later, I said, that's great. And then he said, so what, what do you do? Because he didn't really know me either. And I said, well, we're here at IOP, but our lives are actually changing. We're moving to YWAM Kona, back working with YWAM, and blah, blah. And then he said, that's great. He said, is there anything you need? And that's a great question. <laughs> I said, well, we're raising support, and we still need some more monthly supporters. And I said, would you consider supporting us monthly? And he said, well, actually, we're kind of maxed out on our monthly giving. We're already supporting a bunch of people. So he said, I don't, I don't think we can do that. And uh, I said, okay, no worries. He said, but then is there like a, he asked me, is there a one-time thing that you guys are saving up for or praying for that I can maybe give towards? I said, well, my wife's praying for a car. We, we need a, a vehicle. And he said, what car would you want? I said, Toyota Highlander. He said, oh, that's a great car. He said, we used to have one of those. He said, you should totally go for it. And I said, good. And then he said, um, you know what? My wife and I will pray about it, and we'll ask the Lord if maybe there's, and these were literally his words, a little something that we can give towards the car. And I said, that would be awesome. And then he, uh, he ended, he said, okay. I will get back to you, but if you don't hear from me, then maybe in three weeks' time or so, feel free to reach out to me again, and I'll respond. And I said, great. So I hang up the phone. I tell Marlies, so it was a little awkward, and he talked about all kinds of body parts, but I think he may want to give towards the car, which would be awesome. And uh, so that was Thursday night. The next morning is Friday morning, and uh, he's texting me. And he keeps texting me the whole morning. And it's, it's a little strange because he's like, hey, Daniel, I keep thinking of you. I just can't get you off my mind. I'm like, okay. And... He keeps texting. After a while, I'm thinking, because surely a doctor has better things to do than to be texting me on Friday morning. And it just goes the whole morning. And then I don't respond for a little while. Then I text back, and immediately he responds, and he's just so eager in texting. 
And it just felt so strange. And then at the end of the morning, he's like, actually, Daniel, can we just talk again? I was like, sure. When? He said, now? I was like, okay. So I call him. And uh, he said, hey, Daniel, how are you? And I said, I'm good. He's, he's, um, he said, I just keep thinking about you. I'm like, okay. And he said, uh, my wife and I, we, we, we just, we just, the conversation, we just keep talking about it. And he said, we really actually feel that we need to help you with that car. I said, that's awesome. And so then I, it was, I was thinking, like, what do I say next then? Because like, I wanted to know, like, how much or what he was thinking. And uh, so I was like, what, is, what were you thinking? Is there, like, an, an amount on your heart or something? And um, he, he said, well, you tell me. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, go to the dealership, pick the car you like, I'll pay for it. <laughs> and so I went to the Toyota dealership with, with my kids, and we picked out this nice Toyota Highlander with the leather seats and everything, and it's like a dream car. And, um, and he had told us, like, figure out how much it is, and with the taxes, just like everything that it would cost you to get that car and let me know. And call me back. And so I call him back after I went. And I told him, I said, it's $49,000. And he said, okay, I'll write you a check. And he did. He did. He wrote a check. He mailed a check. And a week later, we get a check in the mail of $49,000. So crazy. And so I go to, and then so I, 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 call, I went to my bank. And I said, I need to deposit this check. And they're like, that's a very big check. <laughs> and they said, that's going to take us weeks to process. I'm like, I don't want to wait for a week. I said, is there any way you could speed it up? And um, they said, well, what you could do is you could take the check to the bank, the issuing bank, like from the guy who wrote it. And they had a bank from that brand uh, in Kansas City. They said, you can just go there, and then they can convert it into cash. And I thought, all right. So I went to the bank, and um, I said, I want to convert this check into cash. And they're like, that's a big check. I said, yeah. They said, that's going to take a little while. I said, that's okay, so I wait. It takes them about 20 minutes or so. And then they said, do you have anything with you to transport the money, like a bag or, or a case or something? I said, no. They said, it's a lot of money because it's $20 bills. And uh, I said, no, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have anything. And, <laughs> and they said, okay, we'll look for something. And then she comes back, and it's this big box of FedEx that somebody had mailed the bank something on, in a FedEx box, and so they filled it with money. So I, there was this big box full of $20 bills, up to $49,000. And uh, so they give me the box, and uh, I, so I get into my car, like the little old $400 car, and I've got the $49,000 in cash on, the, on the, the seat next to me, and I'm driving, and it just feels awesome. I felt like a total gangster, just driving with $49,000 cash. And I go to my bank, and I said, I need to deposit some money. They're like, oh, here's the deposit slip. Just fill it out. And I fill it out, and, she, and then I give it to her, and she's like, okay. And I hand her the box, and she looks at this FedEx box, and she said, who mailed this to you? <laughs> I said, nobody did. <laughs> Anyways, we deposited money, went to the, the car dealer, got the car, that, and that, so that in the afternoon, I drive home. And that evening, Marlise and I went to bed, like we do every night, right? And we're there, and Marlise is there by the window, and I asked her again. This was six months of her praying every night. And I said, Marlise, is it there yet? And she said, the car is right there. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And we still to today, we've never met this man. We've never met this man. I guess every if we have a skin, skin problem, we'll, we'll reach out to him. But... And so, I mean, it's the Lord who does that. 
And, and those are kind of extreme stories, right? That, like, really, that doesn't happen to us all the time. But the Lord does amazing things like that. He really is an amazing provider. And he will do many miracles in you guys' midst, and you'll see it happening. I mean, that story about $2,000, that was incredible. That blew my mind. That was just so amazing. But the Lord will do many more things like that, and you'll see it. And be encouraged. He doesn't like one person more than the next. He will do that for all of you, and who needs it, yeah? He loves you guys. All right. Let's put up the slide uh, from the Great Commission. So yesterday we talked about the Great Commission, right? Yeah. Matthew 28. Let's put it up here. We'll just recap a little. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. So these are the last recorded words of the Lord Jesus in the book of Matthew before he goes to heaven. His parting words, right? He gives what we now call the Great Commission. He gives it to his disciples. He gives it to us, to the church. We are also his disciples, right? He tells us what to do. And he sandwiches these, the commandments in the Great Commission in between two really powerful statements. Who remembers the first statement? I'm the boss, right? Jesus says he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, right? And then he ends with a promise. Who remembers the promise? Yeah, the promise of his presence, right? He says he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so in between those two, prom- two statements, the statement and the promise, he gives us several commandments. And again, these are not options to be considered. They're commands to be obeyed. They're not just my commandments. They're not just for the next guy. They are yours. This is for us, right? Okay, so here we have it. Let's read all of this together out loud. Then Jesus came to them. Awesome. This is our assignment. This is what God tells us to do. So he says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. It's been given to me, and therefore... In light of that, he says, I want you to go, change of location, go and make disciples, go and do something. What was the opposite of going and doing something? Staying, being passive. We are not those people, right? We're the people that are going to go and do something. We're not going to be the people that just passively let the world pass us by. We want to be on God's team. We want to move with his spirit. We want to do what he asks of us. So he says, go. Make disciples of all nations. Nations is not countries, it's people group, ethnic groups, right? Every people group in the world. There's thousands and thousands of them. We'll talk a little more about that tomorrow. But many people groups. And then he says, baptize them. Bring them to that public identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Who can baptize? Everybody. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Again, this is for all of us. And then he gives us this promise. And the command to go is radical, right? Because he tells us to go everywhere. Does he tell us only the safe places? No. Only the comfortable places? No. Everywhere. Somebody has to go. All right? May we be those people. 
So the command to go is radical, but then so is the promise that follows. He says, and I will be with you always. The promise is personal, right? He doesn't say, I'll be with YWAM. I'll be with your church. I'll be with fire and fragrance. He says, I will be with you. It's a personal promise. God doesn't anoint people, ministries. I mean, he anoints people. He doesn't anoint ministries or buildings or organizations. He anoints people. He is with people, not tents. Right, not buildings. Or he is with you. He lives on the inside of you. And he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we don't fear the world. We fear God. We go with courage because God goes with us. Amen. All right. We talked about that yesterday. Now today, so YWAM, as a missions organization, you are here and um, you're doing a mission school. Right? It's not just this missions week. This is a missionary training school, discipleship program. You grow in discipleship and missions. And the, you've got to wonder and ask yourself, why did the Lord put me here? I mean, you came for your reasons, but God sent you here for his reasons. And they're not always the same. And, and that's okay as long as God's will prevails in your life, right? So God decides to send you, to bring you, to throw you into the middle of this missionary organization. And this missionary organization, YWAM, basically does three things. I mean, we do many different things, but it's in three categories. And it's training, evangelism, and mercy ministries. Training, I mean, here you are, right? You are in training right now. And we do DTSs, we do many other training schools, all of that. And we train missionaries. YOM and this mission space here in Kona, what we do is we train and send missionaries. We don't just train. We don't train to train. We train to send, right? And so we train missionaries who we send to the ends of the earth. And now, so that's why even from the start in our DTS, we've got a lecture phase, but also an outreach phase. And you will go. You guys will go all over the world incredibly exciting and God will go with you and you'll see him move and so we train to send missionaries so training is a huge component of YOM we want to give missionaries tools and equip them to be effective missionaries to reach the lost the last and the least so we train but that's not the only thing we do we do evangelism we care about the lost God cares about the lost it says in the Bible it's not his will that even one person would be lost so God's constantly looking, constantly working, constantly trying to save humanity. And he does it through us, right? I mean, he wants to use us. And so we care deeply about telling the gospel of the kingdom, the good news to the lost, to tell them that there is a way to be saved. And so we do evangelism. And so you'll do evangelism during your DTS from the start. We always seek to engage people in doing evangelism. The lost need to hear. How will they know if they're not told, right? We've got to tell. And so we do evangelism. And then the third category is mercy ministry. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Cool? So when, um, when my first time that I ever went to Kenya, we um, were visiting this area in northwest Kenya, and it was the, one of the poorest areas in all of East Africa. And a semi-desert like, place, real poor and primitive. And uh, we'd heard about this children's home that was there. And we went to visit it with a little team. And we're there, and there's about 60 kids. And we're meeting with the family. It was just one family that's taking care of all these children. And it was pretty amazing. And we talked to them, and, and, and the mother, she said, 
expressing her love for these children, her heart for these kids. Most of them were AIDS orphans. You know, the parents die of AIDS and they're just left abandoned. And they started taking these kids in and just became more and more. But it got a little bit out of hand. Now there's like 60 kids and it's still just their family. And they had a few women helping them cook, but that was it. As he's saying, it's been really challenging. She said that these kids, many of them are so broken and said, the more attention we give them, the more love we can give them, the better they do. But she said, I don't, just don't know how to do it with 60 kids. And it just happened so quickly. And so she's sharing, and, and we're, we're talking about how we could help her and everything. And, and after a while, I was just kind of walking around on the property and um, uh, around the children's home. And all of a sudden, I see this little boy, and I think he was maybe two or so little kid beautiful little black kid beautiful big eyes and um, his clothes were were torn he was barefoot and I, I, I was walking up to him and saw him and he looked at me with such a sadness in his eyes so broken as I got a little closer I saw just eye uh, f- flies on, on his eyes and uh, on the corners of his mouth and um, he just looked so sad so broken and I knelt in front of this kid there in the dirt, and I, I tried to say a few things to him, but it was useless. He didn't understand me. And, um, and then I thought, I, I want to pray for this child. I want to bless him. And so I, carefully, I get a little closer, and he, he looks kind of scared. And uh, just gently, I just put my hand on his shoulder, and I just want to pray for him. And I start to pray for him, asking the Lord to touch him. And then all of a sudden, it's like I could feel this heat flow through my arm. And I could see the Holy Spirit coming around this boy and touching him. And then he, something changes in his face and uh, a, a bit of joy. And he comes closer and I'm just holding him. And I'm standing there in the dirt there in Kenya, holding this child, ministering to him. And just feeling the presence of the Lord and seeing the Lord touch him. And all of a sudden... It's like in, in a flash, I could see Jesus when he was on the earth. And he said, let the children come to me. And he didn't want anybody hindering from kids, him interacting with children. And he would take these children and he would bless the children. And then all of a sudden, I could see him like how he was um, caring for orphans and multi- I mean, uh, widows and multiplying food and healing the sick and preaching the gospel to the poor. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of Bible verses that I'd kind of grown up with and had heard of before, all of a sudden they came to life. And um, then I started to think of Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew 8, there was a leper who was sick, right? He's diagnosed with leprosy. And in those days, if you were diagnosed with leprosy, that was considered a contagious and incurable disease. And so what they did is they would cast these people out of the community. You'd have to live outside the city limits alone or with other people who had leprosy. And whenever they would want to come near normal, healthy people, they had to yell out loud, leprosy, leprosy, so that everybody knew, keep your distance. Others had a bell. They had to wrinkle a bell just to be noticed so that everybody knew, keep your distance from the leper. You don't want to get sick. And so in Matthew 8, we find this man sick with leprosy and obviously hopeless, right? I mean, what hope is there for his future? Nothing, right? He's sick physically. He's never going to get healed. He doesn't belong to the normal people. He's alone or with other lepers. We're not sure. But that's a horrible life. And then he hears about Jesus. And he hears that Jesus heals every disease. And hope springs up, right? And so then it says he goes looking for Jesus and he finds him. He finds Jesus. And when he does, he falls to the ground in front of Jesus. 
obviously desperate to be healed. This is his one chance. And he says something really interesting to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me whole. It's interesting because his question wasn't whether Jesus could heal him. He knew Jesus could heal every disease. His question was whether Jesus would heal his disease. Whether his heart was towards him. Whether he found favor in God's eyes. Whether Jesus was willing towards him. That was his question. Lord, are you willing to do it for me? I know you're the healer of so many diseases. but Will you be my healer? And then it says in the Bible, Jesus laid his hand on him, and he said this to him. He said, I am willing. That's what God is like, right? He is a willing God. And it's like Jesus says, I'm not just a healer, I'll be your healer. And he says, be healed. And instantly the man is healed. All, all leprosy goes. And I love it, right? I love that the man was healed, changed his life, right? Changed everything for him. And so that part's awesome. What actually touched me most one time when I was reading this was what Jesus did before he healed him. It said that he laid his hand on him. And it made me realize that Jesus touches those people nobody else wants to touch. Jesus touches those people nobody else wants to touch. And that's what Jesus is like. That's what he's like. Jesus is the one who seeks and saves the lost. He's the one who will sit with the broken. He's the one that will sit with the sick. He's the one who loves those the world rejects. He is the one who honors those the world looks down upon. The world says if it's broken, you throw it away. Not God. Not God. He pursues the broken. He pursues them. The lost, the least of these. And um, in the Bible, there's a lot of verses about this stuff. It says in the Bible that God is a father to the fatherless. He's a father to the fatherless. It says that he is the God who set, takes the lonely and puts them in a family. That's his heart. He brutes, takes the lonely and puts them in a family. To some degree, some of you guys, you will f actually feel that during your DTS. Because some of you are lonely. You know loneliness. And your longing is to be part of a community. To be, feel loved, right? To be part of a family. Some of you will experience to some degree that even just here. But it's his heart to take people who are lonely and put them into a family. And it's literally orphan people, you know, people in the foster care. He wants to put them into a family. He wants children to have fathers and mothers. Then it also says in the Bible that he's close to the brokenhearted. That's who he is. He's drawn to them. He doesn't reject them. He is the God who is close to the brokenhearted. Those who feel crushed. Those who've been abused. Those who feel they've got nothing, that are hopeless. God is right there. It says that he works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. In Psalm 140, I know the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. He's a father to orphans. He's a defender of widows. He's the God who feeds the poor, who satisfies the thirsty. That's what God is all about. He cares deeply about justice. And he cares deeply about the poor and orphans and widows. His heart is drawn to that. And as I'm sitting there in that desert holding this little kid, all of a sudden it made sense. And I realized, gosh, God, you really care about these people. He really does. It has his heart. And he weeps with those who mourn. 
and he longs to bring healing to those who are crushed and satisfy the hungry and, and help the poor. I mean, it's his character. It's what he is like. And if Jesus is like that, then he wants us to be like that, right? So in the Bible, in um, Leviticus, the law of Moses. So God, in the Old Testament, he gave laws to his people, guidelines for living, and he gave them instructions on how to conduct life and all the everyday things in life, all the tasks. And um, the people, the Jewish people, they were an agricultural people. Most of them, they would, they would all farm and grow their own land. And so he had stuff to say about that. And one of the things is this. You can read in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. And he says this to them. Instructions from God to his people. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. And now the Jewish people, again, they were agricultural people. Why did he give them instructions to harvest in such a way? Like leave some of the edges. Don't go over it a second time to, to pick up what was left behind. Why did he say that? goes on. It says, leave them for the poor and the alien. And then it says, I am the Lord your God. In other words, this is what I'm like and you should represent me this way. I am the God who looks after the poor. I am the God who has them on my mind. And so should you, is what he's saying. Then he goes, it's in the, uh, in, in the prophets, some of the books in scripture, some of the prophetic writings. So in the Old Testament, there were many prophetic leaders, many prophets that God sent to his people with messages from God. And these prophets at times, they would be really strong and passionate because God was strong and passionate about certain issues. And there were three things, when you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, there's three major things that the prophets would address among God's people. Three major areas where they would correct God's people nationwide. Because most of these prophets, they, they, they spoke to the nation. They'd speak, speak to the leaders of the nation in authority. And the three areas that they would mostly address were adultery, idolatry, so immorality, and then idolatry, like the worship of false idols, and the third one was neglecting the poor, orphans and widows. It's really one of the main messages in the Old Testament. When you read through the prophets, one of the main messages there is God's heart for the poor and orphans and widows. And there were strong, strong rebukes of these prophets to a people who closed their ears to the cries of the needy in the world around them. One example is in Isaiah 58. He says this, it's not this the kind of fasting I've chosen. So here's, he's speaking to a religious people who are fasting and praying and doing their quote unquote good religious stuff. But then he says this, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to lose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And so he's really saying to them, guys, you're praying, you're fasting, but I'm asking a different fasting from you guys also. So you cannot be going to church and do all the right stuff and neglect the poor and needy. Right? And so he says, I want you to care after him. But then he follows with this amazing promise. He says, but then if you do, if you do care for the poor and orphans and widows, he says this, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. 
Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the spreading of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry, satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually. Who wants to be continually guided by the Lord? Like we do, right? You will satisfy your soul in drought, strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fall. I mean, it just goes on and on and on there in chapter 58 of Isaiah. Promises of answer prayer, promises of provision, promises of God's guidance. God says, if you care for them, it attracts the favor of him. It attracts his blessing because you're living the right way. You're living in agreement with his heart and what he's like. Then it goes into the New Testament. Jesus, he begins his ministry by opening the scroll in, in the temple in the book of Isaiah. And he says to the people that are listening to him, he says, I am anointed to preach the good news to the poor and to see captives set free, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to those who are captive, released from darkness for the prisoners. I mean, Jesus starts his ministry in the most religious place in the nation, in the temple. He tells them, I care for the poor and broken. And then he says, I'm out of here. He leaves the temple and he goes walking through the nation, visiting the poor, the outcast, caring for the hungry, the thirsty, for orphans and widows. It's what he is like. And then he's teaching, right? So in Matthew 25, he teaches this parable about the sheep and the goats. It's this prophetic parable about the end times, about God judging the world, right, from his throne. And then he says all the people come to him, and he's, it's this parable. And he, she, he talks about sheep and goats. And he says this. He said the, the sheep can go to the right and enter the kingdom, and the goats, they go to the right, I mean to the left. And he says to them here, it's in Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, this is now speaking to then the goats, the bad people. He says, those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, guys, if God says that to you, that's a bad day. I mean, that is the worst thing that can happen in your life. When you stand before God, God looks you in the eyes and he says, depart from me. You're cursed. I never knew you. You're going to hell. That's the worst thing that can happen. But then he explains to them why he rejects those people. So again, I end of the age. He's on his throne. He's judging all people. And the good people, they can go to heaven, right? Bad people, they go to hell. Then he explains to them why he rejects them. And he says this. This is so intense. Matthew 25, 42 to 45. He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And then they answered, said, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. I, these are not my words. This is Jesus speaking. Guys, he really, really cares about this. He cares about the poor and broken. 
In James chapter 1 verse 27 it says this, religion that God our Father accepts. So he's saying the, the, the expression of Christianity, the Christian life that is acceptable, that is approved by God, he says, is this. James 1.27. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He says, the expression of Christianity that's acceptable to me is one that looks after orphans and widows in their distress and lives a holy life that keeps himself from being polluted by the world. Now, you've heard people talk about that last half, right? You've heard people tell you, got to live a holy life, say no to sin, say yes to God. Absolutely true, but that's not the complete picture. He also wants us to say yes to orphans and widows. And, and here's the, the, the deal with this verse. You can go to church. You can go to a DTS and you can sit here and sing your songs and pray your prayers and do all that you think you should be doing and you should be doing those things. But, but if you close your ears to the cries of the needy in the world around you, God will close his ears to the songs you sing and the prayers you offer him. Because you are offering him a religion that is not acceptable to him. It's not acceptable. You can't just go to church and ignore the poor. Ignore orphans and widows. You're offering him a Christianity that is unacceptable to him. What is acceptable to him is caring. And so we are not those, right, who sit at home passively and do nothing, right? We listen. We hear the cries of the need in the world around us, and we jump into action. We say, Lord, use me. Send me. Let me make a difference. And whether that's in my street or another nation, doesn't matter. God, use me, right? So in, then Paul, in the Bible, he, um, I mean, and again, again the Scripture is so clear on this and drives us to having to make up our mind to do something about this. You can't. You have to choose either to obey or disobey. The scripture is not neutral on this subject. And um, in uh, Galatians, the, uh, it talks about Paul. And um, he's talking about his life, and he, he got saved. He used to persecute Christians. He encounters God, and then he becomes like the super apostle. And God's using him all over the world, and he's working mostly among Gentiles, which just means non-Jewish people. And he's telling them the gospel and everything, and God's using him in such a powerful way. He's planting churches everywhere. People are getting saved. God's moving through revival. And um, then after some years, he goes back, and he's, he's in Jerusalem, and he visits with some of the original apostles, some of the early apostles. He'd actually never met them. And so they had, he had been persecuting them, and now they had been hearing about Paul, how he got saved, and that he was, the guy who was trying to kill them now is actually on their team and seeing people get saved and planting churches. And so he's in Jerusalem, he's meeting with them. And the, the, the apostles, they ask him, so, so Paul, what are you up to? What's happening? And he says, well, this is the gospel I preach. These are the fruits. This is what God's doing. And the apostles, they affirm him. They say, Paul, this is right. You are in the church of God. You are doing the Lord's will. And they say, just like our Peter, which was one of the original apostles, he said, has been an apostle to the Jewish people, we recognize that you're an apostle to the non-Jewish people. And they affirm him. And Paul's so excited. But then they one thing in Galatians 2, verse 10. 
And this is Paul reflecting on his conversation with the original apostles in Jerusalem. And he says this, Galatians 2.10, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. And so the, the apostles, they're like, Paul, this is amazing. God's using you. You're incredible. You're a super apostle. Keep it up. One thing, Paul, please, for the love of God, remember the poor. Do not forget the poor. It's the one thing they give him. And then Paul, he answers with this, and he said, it's the very thing I was eager to do. Paul, the super apostle, he said, the thing that I was so eager to do was to look after the poor. That's what Paul was like. You know, a sixth of the world's population has too little to eat. There's over 800 million people in the world today that go to bed hungry every night. They go to bed hungry every night. I mean, there's people that are refugees. We've got people that are suffering hunger. There's people in war zones, people trying to survive famine, right? People in horrible, um, uh, abusive situations, people suffering incredible injustice. And God hears and sees all of that. I want to show you guys a picture. Uh, can we put this, this picture up of the, the girl's side? There's this newspaper article that somebody had cut out for me and give it to me years ago. And he had laminated it, and I've saved it. I've kept it over the years, different places where I've lived. I've always had it in my, my office. And um, I just want to show you guys this newspaper article. And it's from a situation in Mexico. And a true story of something that happened. And um, the, uh, you, probably, you won't be able to read it here from the picture. But you'll see the headline there. And uh, you'll see this picture of a girl sitting in a little cage. Again, true story. Here it is. So it says, the girl in a cage. And then above it says, two-year torment of daughter locked up for being a nuisance. And the story is this. So this daughter, this girl, her parents living in Mexico, they, when she was two years old, they were so annoyed with her, they thought she was a nuisance. And her dad goes and builds her a cage, this cage. And they had a shed where they kept pigs. And they locked the girl up in the cage and put the cage in the shed with the pigs. And they leave her there for two years, for two years until she's finally found. And when people find out what happened, authorities went in and they saved this girl. This girl was sitting there in her own waist in clothes that were too small for her to wear. She's now four years old. She couldn't speak anymore after two years and she couldn't walk anymore. And I think about that. I always keep this with me. In my office, just as a reminder of what goes on in the world. Some of the stuff that happens. I mean, here's a girl, and then I, I think about her. I think, what, like, how do you process something like that when you're two years old? And you're locked up in a little cage. I mean, all the nights she may have cried herself to sleep. I mean, how do you understand what's going on? Your dad locks you up in a cage, and it's one night, two nights, a week goes by and you don't know how long it's going to take. And she's there for two years. Just her and the pigs. Two years. And then I think about God who created her. Right? He made her. It says in Psalm 139 that he's the God who knits us together in our mother's womb. So he created this girl. And he had a plan for her life. Right? Jesus loves this girl. He found her worth dying for. He loved her to the point of death. He died for this girl. 
the Savior. And his dream was always, right, that he could have a friendship, a relationship with her. An intimate friendship. And that she would be part of the bride of Christ and for all of eternity. God loves this girl. He saw her when she was born. He saw it when she made her first smile. When she said her first words, when she took her first step. And he saw it that night when she was locked up in the cage. And all the nights that she cried herself to sleep. The loneliness. The sadness. And God who holds the whole world in his hands. He feels it. He feels the pain. He hears the cry. And he sees the girls like this who are locked up in a cage. And then I think and I wonder, what would it be like if God would use me? What would it be like if he would have used you to save this girl? What if you could have been the one that could open this cage and take the girl in your arms? What if God would use you to pray for her, to minister to her, and God would use you to bring healing to her broken heart? What if you could be to see her start walking again? What if you could be there to hear her start to speak again? What if you were there when she would encounter God and discover that she has a father in heaven who is a good father? What if she gets saved? What if you could see her worshiping Jesus for the first time? How amazing would that be? I mean, I don't know why, but God in his wisdom somehow, he chose to limit himself to our willingness to carry out his heart on the earth. He limited himself to our willingness to go and to love those the world doesn't love, to set captives free like this girl, to bring healing to the sick, hope to the hopeless. God wants to use you for these very things. It says in Psalm 145 verse 8, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. The Lord is gracious and he's full of compassion. More than human sentiment. There is emotion in the heart of God. But it's not just emotion. There is action. And, and, and biblically, the word compassion, it means action. It's more than feeling. It's an action. See, when you hear about a widow and you feel bad for her, that's okay, right? I mean, and, and that's heartfelt emotion. But then when you combine that with bringing her a meal or praying for her and reaching out, now it's compassion. Compassion goes beyond just emotion. It takes you to action. God is a compassionate God who not only feels things, but does things. And we, if we are compassionate people like Jesus is, then we need more than heartfelt emotion. We need that too. And it really matters, right? It, that does really matter. It's not a bad thing. It's just not enough. We need to be moved to action. Compassion is an action word, not just a feeling word. Biblically speaking, and, and when you look in the Bible, I mean, 1 John 3 verse 18 says this, Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Right? You loving someone, it's not enough that you just tell that person. You've got to demonstrate it. Right? You've got to love in word and deed. Not just lip service. Right? It's got to mean something. In the Bible, every time in the Gospels, when we read about Jesus, every time he was moved in his emotions 
When he felt compassion, it always led to action. He felt something and he heals. He feels something, he multiplies food. He feels something, he casts out a demon. He feels something, he heals the sick. He always does something. Action always follows his emotions. David Livingstone, he said this, sympathy is no substitute for action. Sympathy is no substitute for action. See, the good Samaritan in that story in the Bible was good because he acted, not because he felt something. He was good because he acted. He felt sorry, and then he did something about the situation. Sit down, we'll go. I'll, I'll share a few more things and a story, and then we're going to pray, all right? A few more things, story, and we'll pray. And um, I'm actually really excited because I think, I think the Lord is really going to speak to some of you guys this morning and do some neat stuff. So I'm really excited. For some of you guys, the Lord's going to call you tonight, t this morning. He's going to do something in your life that's going to be a, a moment that you're going to remember as been, having been a moment that really set direction for your life. Not, not because I'm speaking. It has nothing to do with me. It's the Lord speaking to you and doing some stuff in your heart. So I'm really excited about this. Um, but I just want to say a few more things uh, before, we, we, before we go and ask the Holy Spirit to, to move and do whatever he wants. Now, so we talk about biblical compassion, right? Jesus, God in the Bible, he is compassionate. And compassion was an action word, right? It was, it was heartfelt emotion coupled with action. That's what makes it compassion. It's not just feeling something, it's acting on it, right? And Jesus, again, perfect example. He was an emotional God. He was moved. He would weep with people who wept, right? He, I mean, he, would, he came down to Jerusalem one time, and he sees cities crying. Jesus was a very emotional person. He had real compassion on people, and it always led him to action. He would do something about it. But there's an unbiblical counterfeit to compassion, and that's humanism. Humanism is an unbiblical counterfeit. It's not the real thing. It looks like the real thing, but it's not. It's not biblical compassion. And, and, and he, see, when, when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, God sent Moses to set the people free, right? I, I think I mentioned this yesterday. He didn't just set them free for the sake of freedom. Moses had to confront the Pharaoh and tell them, God says, set my people free. Let my people go so that they may worship me, so that they can go and enter the promised land and serve me. Freedom wasn't just for the sake of freedom. He sets people free so that they can come to him and love him and worship him and carry out their, their assignment. And so get, setting people free is not enough. Like taking the girl out of the cage and telling her, now you're free, is, you're good, is not enough. She's not, right? Feeding a hungry person, giving a hungry person some food and saying, now you're good, is not true. Why? Because the worst suffering is eternal suffering. And so telling some guy who's hungry, giving them some food and saying they're okay now is a lie. They're not. They're lost. They're lost. They're going to hell. They will suffer for all of eternity. Right? And whether they go to hell with a full stomach or an empty stomach, in the light of eternity, that makes very little difference. And I'm not saying we have to choose between two. We have to do both. We have to feed the hungry, but we also have to tell them the good news of the gospel. All right? And so humanism, it only, does the, the, only looks at the human side of things. And it doesn't have the eternal perspective. And it doesn't acknowledge that ultimately sin, 
sin is the cause of all injustice. Sin is the cause of all injustice. And if we don't address sin, we're never truly addressing the root problem of injustice in the world. And so you cannot separate justice from the gospel. It is so tightly connected. So tightly connected. A humanist would have given the prodigal son some food to eat and a bed to sleep and he would have never come home to the father. All right, we need to do more than just giving somebody a bed and some food. Ultimately, they need to come home to the father. And so I just wanted to say that because it's so important that we have a biblical view of justice. Right? And so, I mean, and I've seen it in Africa. We'd see there's lots of missionaries. They would go to Africa and a lot of development organizations, just humanistic development organizations like the World Food Program, you know, the UN and, and many other, and in USAID, there's lots of organizations that help in crisis and relief work. And, but they don't, they don't bring the gospel. And it's not enough, right? So now it's just humanism. And it's still good what they do. It's just not enough. And so sometimes then there, there's this idea comes in, and again, we saw it over and over in Africa. There's people that come from the West, people who have so much stuff, and so many times we in the West, we care so much about our stuff, right? And then we go to Africa, and we want them to also have all our stuff that we have. But they need more than our stuff. They need Jesus, and they need him more than anything. And so don't just go out there and bring your stuff. In fact, many times it's the, the stuff, the things that we have that actually numb us to our need for God. And then we export it to Africa. We give the hungry food and then we tell them they're okay. And it's criminal. It's the worst suffering is eternal suffering. Having stuff is never the end goal. All right? Somebody has housing. Somebody has food. Somebody is delivered taken out of human trafficking. Those are all good, but it's never the end goal. The end goal is that they get to know God, that they worship him, get saved, and then that God uses them, that they get on the team of the Great Commission. Jesus told us to make disciples, not fattened calves headed to hell. All right? So we have to do more than just feed the hungry. We have to give them the gospel. There's a uh, chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. And it talks about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is not going to return until every people, until people from every people group have heard the gospel, right? And God, he's seated in heaven and he sees the injustice on the earth. And he sees the needs that are there. He sees a girl like this. He sees millions of people caught up in human trafficking. He sees people dying of hunger. He sees orphans and widows. He sees kids in foster programs. And it really bothers him. And again, he's limiting, he's limited himself to our willingness to go and make a difference. But, it's, it's, but the, the emotions in the heart of God are so strong. And sometimes it can feel a little bit like God is just sitting in heaven and not intervening, not doing something. Like he is almost okay with the injustice. And I just want to assure you, he is not. He is not. And Isaiah chapter 42, there's such a powerful passage there. 
He's seated in heaven. And, and what it says there is that God, he's in heaven, but he doesn't want to be. He wants to really come down and intervene and bring an end to all injustice. And, but the timing is not right. He's waiting for us to come into action and spread the gospel, right? And so it says he's restraining himself. He's withholding himself. Everything in him cries out and wants to go and intervene. But he can't yet until that one day. There's the right day. We don't know the day or the hour. But a day will come that Jesus himself will come down to earth and he will bring an end to all injustice. And he will remove everything that hinders love. And it's described a little bit on Isaiah 42. And it is so intense. I'm sure many of you, you don't know Jesus this way, but he is this way. And so he says this. It's in Isaiah chapter 42, 14 and 16, 17. He says this. I've held my peace a long time. I've been still and I've restrained myself, he says. But then now the day comes. He's coming. The second coming. And then he says this. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. And then he says, and I will lay waste to mountains and hills. And he, talk, he goes so intense. And he says, I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them, crooked light straight. These things I will do for them, and I will not forsake them. And then he talks about how he's going to come and bring an end to all idolatry and all immorality and all sin, all evil, all injustice. But the picture here it paints is that Jesus, he says, I've been restraining myself. I have to hold back. And the picture almost of like him holding onto his throne. So, so boiling with emotion over the injustice on the earth. And then he says, but then the day comes. Well, I will not hold back. And he will come. And then it says, he will come with a shout. And he says, and, and I mean, I've seen my wife give birth. And it is so intense. I mean, the intensity, the emotions, the shouts, the screaming. Like, it is so intense. And Jesus, I'll be like that. I will come. And in a moment, all the hatred of God. See, you're told God is a God of love. He is. He's also a God of hate. He hates injustice. And in a moment, he will rise. He, and all the hatred against injustice. All the emotion he has felt in a moment are released. And he will come. And guys, it will be the most terrifying thing to every unbeliever, to every evil person. It will be the most terrifying thing to every pimp, to every slave driver, to every murderer. Even most terrifying. They will face the full wrath of the emotion of God against injustice. Guys, our God is like that. He has strong emotions. He really cares about that. When, um, we, were, when we were living in Kenya, we, um, we started hearing about the Congo, a nation that's in the middle of Kenya. It's this beautiful nation. It's a big country right in the middle of Africa. And um, uh, um, it's very rich, the country, in natural resources. Like it has, especially on the east side of the Congo. There's a lot of mines there. They've got diamonds and cobalt, other precious metals, stuff that's in your phone. There's stuff in your phone that came from the Congo. And uh, so the, the Congo is a country with lots of resources. And uh, it should be a rich country, but at that time it was the poorest country in the whole world. Even though it was so rich in resources, and it was mostly just because of bad government, corrupt leaders, 
and war and greed and sin, basically, right? Sin. And um, even though the country is beautiful, amazing people, very musical people, um, and uh, the country itself, even nature-wise, very beautiful, lots of jungle. And the country kind of has two parts. And on one side of the country is the capital city, Kinshasa, and then the middle is just this vast jungle. There's no roads even that go between the two sides of the country. Um, there's one river that you could use to cross, and then there's the other side of the country. And, um, <clears throat> and that's the area where all the, res- the mines and the resources are. And um, we were living in Kenya, we start hearing stories about a war going on in the Congo right there on the eastern side of the Congo, where the, all the mines were. And there was a rebel war going on. And, the, and it's really the resources that have fueled a lot of the conflict. And so these rebel groups, they're fighting over regions, they're fighting over control over villages and these mines so that they can get the resources and buy more weapons and become more powerful. And so there's these several rebel groups that are moving around in this region. They're fighting each other. They're oppressing the people. And the UN called them some of the most intensely violent groups in the world. And it was absolutely horrific what was going on over there. And we started reading into it and learning what was going on. They had a lot of child soldiers. And what they would often do is they would abduct these kids. They would force them to murder their own parents and then they would drug these kids and these kids would be completely traumatized and drugged up and they would turn these kids into killing machines. And they would use these kids in war to kill people with machetes. And um, then we would hurt ab- about the, the sexual violence in that area. Many people in the, the UN, the United Nations, they would call that the rape capital of the world. And it's been documented that over one third of all the women in that whole region have been raped. Many over and over again with husbands and children forced to watch. And that's what's documented. One third. It's much, much more. And so they call it the rape capital of the world. The sexual violence there is absolutely horrific. It's too sick, too disgusting for me to tell you what happens. But women are raped in ways that kill them. Horrible, horrible things are done there. Cannibalism happens and all kinds of stuff. And so we started hearing some of these stories, and it just moved us, right? It's just horrific to hear. Some of you may have seen that movie um, called Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a rough movie, but for those who've seen it, that's really actually what happens over there in the Congo. And so we started hearing about the war, and we started praying, right? I mean, that's where you begin. You start to pray. I mean, we're moved in our emotions. We begin to pray. And so we're praying, Lord, we pray you end the war. We pray that you bring justice. We pray that you turn this around. And we start blame, praying for this nation. And then we started, we didn't want to just pray. We wanted to go, right? So we, we asked the Lord for an open door. We didn't know anybody in that country, no contacts or whatever. And so we, we started praying. We asked the Lord, Lord, would you connect us to the right people? Give us an open door. Like, use us. Make, help us make a difference in this nation. And um, so we keep praying, we're praying, and somehow we get connected to a pastor in a city there. And uh, the city is called Goma. It's a big city right there. It's kind of like the capital city of that eastern side of the country, city of about a million people. And there's a pastor there named Mboto. Mboto has become a dear friend, and we got his email address. Somebody connected us, and I sent him an email, and I said, hey, I'm Daniel, missionary. And I said, I I would love to come and visit your country and serve or help whatever is helpful. I mean, we'll come and clean your toilets, like however we can help and serve you. 
And um, anyways, we ended up, him or he ended up organizing a, a, a pastor's leaders conference for us in the city. And uh, so I took a little team. We traveled from Kenya through uh, Uganda, through Rwanda, into the Congo, crossed the border and the city's right there. And as soon as we crossed the border into the Congo, this prayer welled up in my heart. And I kept praying over and over, God, take me to the most broken so that I can love them, so that I can show them that you still love them. And it, it, was just, it kept coming up. I kept praying, God, please take me to the most broken people in this nation. I want to show them your love. And, and so we're there. We meet with Mboto, a wonderful godly man. And we do the conference, this leaders gathering. And there's about 60 leaders or so, 50, 60. And it was good. good. It was great. Nothing super amazing, but it was, it was good. But then as we neared the end of the conference, one day Mboto, he's like, Daniel, I, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. So he takes me aside. We're in this room. He said, I've got to tell you something. I said, what, what, what is it? And he said, well, I just got a report from the war zone. And so north of the city was where the, the war zone was, where the rebels were moving around. And he said, Daniel, a, a pastor had just come. He fled the war zone, and he gave me a report. And he said he lived in a little village, and he said a rebel group called the Intrahumwe, which was the most feared rebel group in the country. He said they came and they attacked his village. And in his village, there were about 130 houses. And with houses, you got to think little mud huts with thatched roofs. And he said the rebels, they came in. And they killed the men, they raped our women, and they burned all our huts, all our houses to the ground, many of them with our children alive in them. And he was able to escape, and he fled through the whole war zone, and he made it to the city, and he came to the conference. And he told them both, and Mbota tells me, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, I mean, it was hard to wrap my head around the reality of that. And I asked him, I said, like, that really happened? I just could barely believe it. Just north of here? And he said, yeah. And then I said, and, and this has happened a lot. He said, all the time. And then I asked, and, and, and there are churches there? He said, yeah. He said, and they're suffering immensely and have for years since the war started five years ago. And I was so moved by it. So I asked him about that. I said, is there any way that maybe after the conference with our team that, that somehow we could go to the war zone and visit some of these churches and just minister to them and encourage them? And he, he started laughing a little bit. He said, no, no, you can't. There's no way. He said, it's too dangerous. You'll all die. There's no way. It's a war zone. He said, you can't travel there. You'll all die. I said, okay. And that evening, I remember laying in bed, and I just keep thinking about that story. And I keep praying, God, take me to the most broken so I can love them. And again, I wake up with it, and I go to Mboto the next morning. And I said, Mboto, I understand that our team cannot go there. Like, we would stick out. People would see us, whatever they kill us. I said, I, I get that. Then I asked, is there any way that I can go alone? I said, my heart is so drawn to this place. And, uh, and I thought about it. I even made a little plan. I said, is there a way that maybe I could be transported in a coffin? Because I thought nobody's going to look in a coffin. But he didn't think that was a good idea. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I, I asked him, like, yeah, any way? And he said, Daniel, it's, it's too dangerous. And I told him, I, I've been praying for this. I said, this is, it has my heart. And, and he, he, he was quiet for a little while. And then he said, you really want to go, don't you? And I said, I would love to go there. And he said, Okay. I'll go with you. He said, we'll go with the two of us. He said, but it'll be dangerous. And I said, let me just call my wife. <laughs> so I called Merlise. And uh, I said, Merlise, you know, and I t- explained to her the story. She was in the Netherlands at that point. And, um, 
I explained the story, how we were there, the conference, the story of the man who came to the conference. I told him that I, I, the team couldn't go, but that Bota said he would take me. The two of us could go, and he said that it would be dangerous. And I said, I don't know how dangerous is dangerous. I don't know really what it's like, and, um, he, but he said it would be dangerous. What do you think? And then she said this to me. She said, Daniel, you're called to this stuff. Jesus stepped into the darkness and said, let there be light. She said, you should do the same thing. And, and I said, okay, so then I, I went back to Mboto, and um, Mboto, I, I said, I got the green light for my wife. I said, let's do this. Then he said, all right. So he pulls out this map, and he said, the war zone is here in this region north of us. He said, um, let's make a plan on where to go. And I told him, I said, I want to go to the worst place. I said, who is suffering the most? And he said, oh, that's, it would probably be here. And he points to a village called Kanya Bayonga. It's right in the middle of the war zone. He said, it's a bigger village, maybe like 1,000 to 1,200 people. He said, I know there's a church there. I've met the pastor once. He said, I don't know if he's still there. And there's no way to reach them. There's no cell coverage. There's no, you, we can't call them. He said, but it's right in the middle of the war zone. He said, then we should go there. And I said, okay. So we make our plan. That's where we're going to go. And uh, we sent the team home. We finished the conference, sent the team home. And the next day in Boats and I, I'm at his house. And uh, we're going to go to the airport and, and fly a little bit and then keep traveling. And uh, so I'm at his house early in the morning, ready to go. I got my backpack. And um, <clears throat> he is there with his wife and his six children. And he says goodbye to his wife and kids, but he's really taking his time. And he starts with his youngest child, kneels down in front of his child. He says some things. He blesses his child. Then they hold each other. He's kissing his child. Then he goes to the next one, again, holding the child, blessing. And it's so emotional. And every, every kid, and then his wife, and they're holding each other. Again, so emotional, and they're praying for each other. And I'm like, gosh, we're only going to be gone for a few days. Like, this is so intense. And, um, and then finally he's done. We go to the airport, and we get on this little propeller plane, him and I, and we fly for 45 minutes north towards the war zone. We land in some little village. On like a, on just, on, the plane lands in the dirt. And um, we get on motorbikes, and for four and a half hours, him and I would drive on motorbikes towards the war zone. And at the end of the day, we reach a little village called Lubero, and it's on the edge of the war zone. So after that, it's what they call the red zone, where the rebels are in control. And um, our plan was to spend the night there. And during that day, as we're traveling, we're talking. And I'm trying to get a feel for what it's going to be like, right? And also to see, like, how dangerous is dangerous, and so I asked him, like, what, what is it like? And he, and, and he had obviously been to that region before. And he said, well, Daniel, the last time that I went there was two years ago. It was also during the war, but there was still a bus that drove. And he said, I was on this big bus. We're driving through the war zone. And he said, all of a sudden, we're stopped by, on a roadblock with, with rebels. And the rebels stopped us. And he said, and, and, and they came into the bus, and they took all our valuables from us. And he was sitting in the back, and he said, and then as the rebels exit the bus again with our valuables, the last rebel soldier, he's, he looks around, and he points to two guys, said, you and you, come out of the bus with us. And the two men follow out the, the, the rebels out of the bus, and then right next to the bus, the rebels, they take their machetes, their big swords, and they start hacking these men to death into pieces. And in both, he's sitting in the back of the bus by the window, and he sees it happening. And he said, in front of me was a woman with a baby. And she's screaming, crying as it happens. Because one of these men was her brother, who she's just seeing hacked to death. So she's screaming, screaming, crying. And the rebels hear it. And one rebel comes back into the bus. And this is horrible, but it's what happened. 
he goes up to the mother and the baby and he grabs the baby by the feet and starts hitting the baby against the bus to kill the baby. The mother jumps on the rebel, starts fighting, and right there in the bus, the rebel kills with his sword the, the mother and the baby. It happened right in front of Mboto. And Mboto said, Daniel, it was traumatizing seeing that happen. He said, and when I saw that, I decided to never go to that region again. And he said, even the time before that I went, he said, I also took a bus and we were also stopped by rebels, five of them. And he said, and they got in. They didn't take any of our belongings. They just wanted to hitch a ride. And he said, they told us all to squeeze into the front half of the bus. And the five of them sat in the back row of the bus. And we drove for hours. He said, everybody's dead silent. It was so dangerous, so scary because we didn't know what was going to happen. Are they going to kill us? Are they just going to leave? We don't know. So they drive for hours until there's another roadblock by an opposing rebel group. And so these guys come in. And they see the hitchhiking rebels and these opposing rebels, they, the fight breaks out in the back of the bus and they kill the hitchhiking rebels. And then they told us to keep driving. And he said, we're driving. He said, blood was just flowing down the bus from these five men that were killed in the back. And he said, I had decided never to go back into the war zone. He said, it's too terrible and it's too dangerous until you said you wanted to go. He said, I couldn't let you go alone. And he said, Daniel, you have to realize that if we run into rebels, we will die a bloody death. And so that really sobered me up, right? Like that really, that, that I realized, gosh, this is, this is really real. And so we travel all day and he's telling me story after story of what it's like there. And uh, at the end of the day, we, we come to that village, right? Lubero on the edge of the war zone. And the plan was we're going to spend the night and then the next day we were going to drive all day with our motorbikes just through the war zone to the village of Kanyabayonga not knowing if we would encounter rebel because you never know where they are. And, and part of me feels restless. And I'm praying, I'm asking the Lord, Lord, would you make a way? And a little bit I'm wondering, can you do what I'm doing here? Like, can you just take a motorbike and drive through a war zone hoping you don't see rebels? And I wasn't quite sure, to be honest. And it's not like I had a word of the Lord to go to that specific village. And it's also not really how I live, to be honest. I mean, I once, uh, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of Brother Andrew. He wrote this book called God Smuggler, incredible missionary hero. And um, he, one time when I met him, he said, I believe in a no. And I said, what do you mean? He said, God gave me the great permission, the great commission. He said, it's the great permission. I can go anywhere in the world. And he said, I don't wait for a word of the Lord. He said, I go wherever I want. And I trust the Lord will say no if I go the wrong direction. I love that. He gave us a great permission. So, and then that's how I live as well. I, I do whatever I want. In a good, good, good things, right? Uh, whatever is in my heart. I don't wait for a word of the Lord. And there's some things the Lord does speak to me upon, about and others not. And God had not spoken about this village or going into the war zone. It was just in my heart, right? In my prayers. It was my tears. And, and so I just went. But now I was wondering, like, how much risk can you take? And I was feeling a lack of peace. And so I told them, Boto, we've got to pray. And then... We're in this village, and there's a U.N. army base there. And so I told them, like, hey, why don't we go to the U.N. army base and just ask them for any advice and see if they have any information on the movement of the rebel soldiers. And he's like, yeah, good idea. So we go there. We meet with the, their head guy, and um, we explain ourselves. Say, hey, we're missionaries, and our plan is to go to Kanya Bayonga tomorrow. I said, do you have any information on the, the movement of rebels? And he looks at us. He's really surprised. He says, nobody goes there. He said, it's too dangerous. And then he said this, but you're lucky. 
He said, we actually have a convoy of armed vehicles scheduled to leave here tomorrow morning, 9 a.m., and we're actually scheduled to drive through the village of Kanyabayonga. If you want, you can drive with us and under our protection, and we can drop you off right there. And immediately, I just feel the peace of the Lord. I realize God makes a way, right? The promise of the Great Commission, you go, God goes with you. Stuff happens, right? So I feel this peace. So we go to bed that night. And um, in, in that village, it was already so intense. There's soldiers everywhere from the Congolese army. And, and they're walking around drunk and with their guns and just so intense. One higher up army guy, he comes up to us and he looks them both in the eye. And they don't speak English. But this guy in perfect English with this really dark voice, he looks, he stares at uh, Mboto and he says, I'm in the service of evil. And then walks away again. Like it was so intense, like total demonic manifestation. And um, anyway, so we sleep that night. Next morning, 9 a.m., we get into the vehicles with all the soldiers. And there's like five or six vehicles. And we start driving through the war zone. And the UN soldiers, their mission was mostly, a, it was a monitoring mission. So it means they don't fight the rebels unless they're attacked. And so the rebels typically leave the UN alone. And um, so we're driving all day. We don't see any rebels. And it's about halfway the day. And the guy next to me, he was leading the convoy. He said, sir, do you need a little restroom break? I said, well, actually, I do. And he's like, all right. So they, the, the, all the vehicles stop. He says, wait here. He jumps out. He yells some commands. And all these soldiers come out of the vehicles with their guns. And they form this circle, all facing outward with the guns. And then he says, sir, you can do right there in the middle. And I had to pee right there in the middle of the circle. It's the most awkward and probably also the most safest I've ever peed in my life. <laughs> and uh, so then we, we keep driving. And um, then at the end of the day, it's around 5 p.m., we get into the village of Kanyabayonga. And I'm so excited. Like, we made it (laughs) to the heart of the war zone. We're right there, and they drop us off at the little church that's right there. And um, and so we get out. They just keep driving, and we walk up to the church, and we knock on the door. We don't know who's there or anything. And it's the pastor and Boto had met, and they fall each other in their arms. And the pastor is so happy, and they're laughing, they're thanking God. And he's like, come in, come in. And we, we sit down in, uh, in his house in the church, and um, I asked the pastor, I said, so how are you doing? Tell me. And he said, well, it's been really hard. He said, last week, he said about a week ago, a village just four miles from here of about 130 homes, he said they were attacked by the Intrahumway. And they killed the men, they raped the women, and they burned all the houses to the ground. And, 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 and I was like, what? That was four miles from here? That was the story I heard about, right, during the conference. And, he, and then he said this, and this is what really shocked me. But he said, after they attacked that village, they came to our village. But our village is too big. But he said, for the last few days, and still now, he said, we're surrounded by the Interhumway rebels. And for the last few days, every night, they come in and attack, and they kill people. We never know where. And we, he says, we're surrounded, we're stuck in our village. And obviously, Boats and I, with that, also stuck. And then he starts telling me story after story after story of the last five years of the war. And it was horrific stuff. And I could tell you guys stories, and I've read reports and seen pictures of things. Honestly, guys, it'll make you sick to your stomach. Sick to your stomach. So evil. So brutally violent. Honestly, horrible, horrible, evil stuff that takes place. And he's telling me story after story. And, and, and everybody has a story there. I met this one guy. He said, oh, Daniel, a few years ago when I was 16, I woke up one morning at home and our dad was missing. And it was unusual. So he said, we went out to look for him and he walked into the bushes, 16-year-old. 
He said he saw this stick that was stuck into the ground with his father's head on it. That's how a 16-year-old finds out that his dad was beheaded by rebels that night. And everybody had a story. Everybody has their stories. And so he tells me story after story. And after a while, it's so overwhelming that I can't handle it. I literally, I can't handle the intensity of it. And I asked him, and I don't think I've ever asked anybody this. I asked him to stop talking. I asked him in a nice way, but I said, I'm sorry, I'm, it's so overwhelming for me. And he's like, oh, no, no, it's okay, I understand. You guys have traveled today, you must be tired. Let me show you your room. And so by the church on the side, they had built five little bedrooms. And, um, and, and there was a caretaker who had one of the rooms. And so he, they're showing us the rooms, and Mboto and the caretaker talk a little bit. And then Mboto said, Daniel, here's our plan. Why don't you take the middle of the five rooms? I'll take the room to your left. The caretaker will take the room to your right. And then he said this, that ca- in, in, in that case, or that, in that, way, that way, in case the rebels come and attack us tonight, at least you will be the last one they find. And I, and I, okay, and I, I was like, what in the world? Like, it's so hard to, to wrap your head about the reality of what's going on. And so I go into the room with my backpack, and there's one, it's super tiny, concrete floor, and there's um, uh, uh, one little wooden bed and one chair. And I'm thinking, okay, where do I even hide if I hear anything? Like, the first thing they'll look is under bed. There's no place to hide. So to open the door again, I look outside. There's some banana trees with bushes. And I'm thinking to myself, if I hear anything tonight, this is my plan. I'm going to hide in those bushes. And so that I go back in my room, close the door, and I want to go to bed because I'm tired. And um, <clears throat> as I'm getting ready, I'm standing there in my room. And all of a sudden, this fear comes over me. And I get really scared. And I'm thinking about where I am, and I'm realizing I'm surrounded. There's no way to get out of this village. I can't call anybody. I'm st- we were genuinely stuck. And I thought, this could be it. I could die here this night or in the next few days. This could be my last trip. And, you know, there's a real difference between counting the cost and paying the price. And I thought, this could be it for me. And so this fear comes over me, and then I think, okay, I, but I don't need to be afraid. God's with me. I should be okay. But I can't shake the fear. And it just gets stronger and stronger. And after a while, I'm almost throwing. I feel it in my stomach. I'm almost throwing up. And I'm like, I'm trying to fight it. I'm like, come on, Daniel, get it together. Don't be afraid. And I always thought I was a little bit of a brave missionary with, like, with our team. Like we had done all kinds of stuff. We've been in many bad places. We've all been shot at, all kinds of stuff, right? And I always thought, come on, I, was, I had a little bit of courage, but I couldn't shake the fear. And I thought, God, I need to meet with you here. I need to pray. And so I turned to Psalm 23, where it says that God can prepare a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. I said, God, I'm surrounded by enemies. I need a little party tonight. I need you to come and meet me here. And I'm praying, and I'm pressing in and, and, and crying out to God and fighting this fear and meditating on this word. And it takes me four hours, four hours, and all of a sudden I break through, and in a moment again, the fear lifts. And the peace of God comes into the room. His, his, his presence surrounds me. And I feel the most safe I may have ever felt. And so I sleep that night. I sleep great. Next morning, 6 a.m., we're gathering in the church to pray. Every morning at 6 o'clock, they pray. Whenever believers meet each other, the first thing they do is they pray. They thank God they're still alive. Because they never know if they'll live another day. And so they pray that morning at 6 a.m. in the church. And they ask me to, to lead the prayer meeting. And uh, so I, we just went through some of the Bible verses that helped me the night before break through my fear. And then I said, guys, let's pray. And we pray, and the presence of the Lord comes. We're, we're crying, we're worshiping, we're praying, and it's just a beautiful time of fellowship. So beautiful. 
And um, then afterwards, now, we're talking, right? And you hear the stories. And it's gross, but it's what happens. So a guy was killed. Like, the village was attacked. I heard nothing. A guy was killed just right on my street, which is like a sand dirt path. A guy was killed, and, and then the rebels, what they did is they cut off his privates, and they cut off pieces of meat from his leg to take with them to eat because they're cannibals. And so they're telling the stories now of what happened that night. So intense. And then a guy comes up to me, and he said, Brother Daniel, he said, I want to thank you. I said, what do you mean? He said, I want to thank you for visiting us. He said, since the war began five years ago, no missionary has come. Our own family doesn't visit us. The overseers of our church denomination have abandoned us. He said, we've been left all alone. And then he said this. He said, but because you came, it's a confirmation that God still sees us and that he still loves us. And I felt so happy. I was so happy. And I thought, God, you're doing it. This is what I prayed for, right? That God would take me to the most broken so that I could show them God still loved it. I was so happy. Honestly, the joy in my heart in that moment, so happy. And so I turned to the next guy. I was like, hey, good morning. How are you doing? Like super happy because I feel so happy. And he looks at me with this broken look in his eyes. And he said, how am I doing? He said, I can't sleep anymore at night. I've seen too much. And it was so sad, and we prayed together. And then the pastor came. He's like, Daniel, I, I want you to meet somebody. And the pastor takes me and Boto to the house next to the church, which was of a widow. And um, he introduced us to this widow, and she had nine children. And her husband had died a bloody death just a few months earlier while she was pregnant of this, this ninth child. She's sitting there with the baby. She calls all the kids, and they're all there. And it was amazing, like, like eight kids and then holding the baby. Beautiful children beautiful eyes and just amazing boys and girls and they're all there and then she tells us about how their husband died and what happened and she had two pictures two photographs of her her husband and she shows them it's all she had and she said this was my husband and she said I, it's been hard she said I don't know how to care for my children and said so we, we we don't have food like and, and it was really difficult and then Boats and I, we tried to encourage her. And the times she would just zone out, she would just be staring at the photos of her husband. And she would say, I miss him so, I miss him so. It was heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And, and Boats and I, we, we, I mean, we just emptied our pockets. Anything we had, it wasn't much. We gave her whatever we had. And we prayed together. And then <clears throat> we're, we're back in the pastor's house by the church. And he comes up to him, Boats and I. And he said, guys, I'm so sorry. And he's so apologetic. And I said, well, what do you mean? Like, we're good. He's like, no, no, no. He said, you are my guests, and I want to feed you. But he said, but I don't have any food. He said, I'm so sorry. He said, since the rebels surround us, he said, the village was in a, in a valley. He said, we grow our food on the slopes of the mountain. But he said, since we've been surrounded, if the men go to gather food, they get killed. If the women go, they get raped. Our village has no food anymore. He said, I'm so sorry. I can't make you a meal. And we said, that's okay. We don't, you don't need to give us anything. And that day, we, we were inside, and we weren't allowed to be anywhere outside. And um, <clears throat> at the end of the day, the pastor, he had gone away the afternoon. He comes back with a big smile on his face, and he's got this plastic bag. And he says, I've got something for you guys. And we're like, what? And he hands us this bag, and we open it up, and it's this huge pineapple. It's a huge pineapple. And he's so happy. And, and it would be rude not to accept it. And so Mbota, we're sitting, he's like, eat it up, eat up. We're sitting at the table, and, 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 and Mbota, he's cutting it in total silence. He cuts it, and we eat it. It was hard to eat that pineapple. 
when we'll never know what it cost him or what he risked to get that for us. But it's just so moving. A man who has nothing but still sought to give. And um, again, that night we go to bed next morning, 6 a.m. prayer meeting, right? And now it wasn't in the church. It was in one of the huts of a church member who lived next to the church. And we're all gathered in this little hut. There's like maybe 20 of us in there, squeezed in there. And um, <clears throat> the pastor is like, Brother Daniel, would you share? And I didn't know what to say. Genuinely, I was, I was genuinely at a loss for words. Uh, I just thought, I said, I'm sorry, I don't actually have anything to say other than I'm so grateful to be with you. And he said, oh, that's okay, no problem. And then a lady, not the one next to me, but one over, she raised her hand. She's like, Pastor, I've got something to say. And the pastor's like, all right, go for it. And she said, I want to give a testimony. And she turns to the Psalms, and I can't remember which, which passage she read, but it was something on the goodness of God. And then she said this, I want to testify this morning of the goodness of God. And she said, if we look with natural eyes, we all see many hardships. But if we can look with spiritual eyes, we can all see that God is so good to us. And she gives this incredible moving testimony on the goodness of God and the friendship of God and how God is with them. It was incredible. I was so convicted. I was like, oh my gosh, when I don't feel God for a while, I'm like, God, you're still out there, right? You still love me. And these people, they live in some of the worst circumstances you can imagine. They're so confident and holding on to God's word, so confident of his goodness for them. It was absolutely moving. And then after she finished, they started to sing. They started to worship. And they began to sing this old hymn. And it was so beautiful what I did. I just pulled out my phone and I recorded it. And I've got the recording here. I want you guys to hear it. And so they're singing a hymn. And so this is in, in, in a little mud hut, six in the morning, middle of a war zone. All these voices you hear, they don't know if they're going to live another day. And so they're singing, and they're singing in Swahili. So you, unless you speak that, you won't understand it. But it's an old hymn. We have it in English, too. And it sings about the friendship of the Lord Jesus. And the lyrics in the song is, There's not a friend like the Lord Jesus. No, not one, no, not one. There's no friend like the Lord Jesus. And so they're singing that, and this is what it sounded like. those are our brothers and sisters they were there in the middle of the darkness shining a light offering Jesus worship incense arose from that place and it was beautiful the darkness could not overcome the light and how precious was that to God right how special was that to God he will remember that forever worship right there from the war zone Three years or two and a half years later. Uh, anyway, so I was stuck in the village. Just wrap this up quickly. We're going to pray. I was stuck in the village, right? There's no way for us to get out. I told him both again, maybe coffins. He still didn't think it was a good idea. And then we're talking, and I'm looking at my phone, and all of a sudden I realized my phone has network. I'm thinking, what in the world? Because it shouldn't be working. 
And I just try something, and supernaturally, somehow, my phone is working. And so I have this friend in Canada. He's connected to the UN and whatever. And so I just try to call, and I call to Canada. And I wake up this couple, and I get Ralph, my friend, on the phone. He's like, hey, Dan, are you okay? And I'm like, well, yes and no. I'm, I explain I'm stuck here in the war zone. I don't know how to get out. I don't know what to do. And he said, okay, no worries. Let me do, make some calls. And then he said, just wait and don't die. So he said, just don't die. And uh, he calls the UN. Anyways, long story short, the UN sets up a rescue mission. They come with enough weapons to shoot a plane out of the sky. They pick up me and Boto, and they drive us to safety. We drive all day, and then they drop me off somewhere. I take a motorbike, cross the border to Uganda, another bus ride for 12 hours. I travel, I make my way back. And I cried for two days straight. I couldn't stop crying. And I kept thinking mostly about this widow. And I didn't see a solution. I didn't know what to do. And so I just asked the Lord, Lord, would you just take her to heaven? Her and all the kids, he's done it in scripture. There's stories there. There's a couple stories. God taking, rapturing somebody to heaven. I said, God, and I, honestly, guys, I cried out to God. I begged God to just take this widow and all her children to heaven. Anyways, I traveled to the Netherlands and I'm there, and um, <clears throat> this this worship night, and I tell this, this story, and um, then the worship leader, he knows the hymn. We actually sing the hymn, and we're praying for this village, and then we take up an offering. We raise a thousand, thousand dollars. As we were ended up being able to send that money to Mboto, and they were able to set up a rescue mission, and they got the widow and all the nine children evacuated and brought to the city where Mboto lives. Yeah. And the widow and old children are doing great. The kids are in school. They're in the church. The church is caring for them. And it was amazing. I had no solution, but God did. And then two and a half years later, I'm back in the Congo on a different trip. I'm in the region. And Mboto, he says, Daniel, you'll never believe this. I said, what do you mean? Because I, for two and a half years, I've been telling people everywhere to pray for this village. And, but I didn't know what was going on because you can't call them, right? You just don't know. So we just kept praying. And so Mboto says this. He said, Daniel, somebody from the village said this, that from the day we left, two and a half years ago, this is what they said. There was never once again a day of violence. They were never once again attacked by rebels. Right in the middle of a war zone. Ongoing war. And the Lord preserved them. And that's the power of prayer. Right? It's the power of prayer. Your prayers. You speak to God. God moves. He can move anywhere. You pray for the Congo. He really moves there. Your prayers really matter. Your prayers don't need a passport or a visa or a vaccination. They cross borders. You speak to God and He moves in the nations of the earth. It really, really makes a difference. All right? He responds to your prayers. And so we pray. And all of us can pray. But then there's others of us that the Lord will send. And some of you will have the privilege to go into places like that. And to be a light in the darkness. To just like Jesus, step into the darkness and say, let there be light. And to bring hope to the hopeless. To touch those in leprosy. To bring healing to the sick. To set little girls free from cages. To set captives free. That's the heart of God, right? To feed the hungry. And to bring the good news of the gospel. When you go, God goes with you. So I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit just to come. And what I'm going to ask for... Is, is the fire of God's love to be start touching our hearts and His compassion, His emotion to come and touch our hearts. So you don't have to do anything. I just want to ask you just to open your heart and just let the Lord do whatever He wants. In fact, why don't we just stand up? Let's just stand. I'm going to pray.
Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this message. For more on missions, stay right here on the Fire and Fragrance podcast.